The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 66. Doctor Who. The Curse of Fenric. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And tonight we'll be looking at the Doctor Who story, The Curse of Fenric, the penultimate serial of the classic run from 1989. This is in memoriam of Nicholas Parsons, who we lost uh, just this week, as uh, we record, at the age of 96. Now, before we go into that, we raise a glass every time, so we shall raise a glass to this fine presenter, very long-running presenter, best known for just a minute, what is the tonic screwdriver going to open for us tonight? Tonight we have Gin Zoriga, uh, a Spanish gin. How are we spelling that? X-O-R-I-G-U-E-R. And despite the fact that I'm learning Spanish, I have no idea how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> this is from Menorca. And it says, Years of British Influence. Wonderfully aromatic, this gin has been enjoyed for centuries on the island of Menorca. It was first made for British sailors who were stationed on the island between 1708 and 1802, and is still made in the traditional way according to the original 18th century recipe. Distilled from wine alcohol, it is infused with fresh juniper berries and a secret blend of herbs known only to the Pons family, who to this day make the gin themselves. It can now be enjoyed in the UK. Yeah, and it comes in an interesting little green bottle with a little hooky handle on it. And it's got a picture of a windmill on the front. Well, it's interesting. It's got, and I like interesting. It's got a nice bluey cloud to it. It doesn't really smell of much. Very it's got a bit of, bit of a paint strippery smell, mm. actually. It's got a bit of a paint stripper taste to it. I'm not keen on that at all. It reminds me of a nicer version of that Geneva that we had. Anything's nicer than Geneva. I'd rather have paint stripper on the rocks than drink Geneva again. Um, but this is kind of Geneva-ish. I'm not wildly keen on it. There's a, a bitterness to it that sort of hangs about on the tongue and I'm, I'm not keen on. I'm not sure what the flavour is in this, but I don't particularly like it. Do you know what it reminds me of? It is interesting. That, t- that tastes the way floor cleaner smells. No, I'm not, I'm not keen on that at all. It's got a very potent I won't say after taste, but after feel. You know you've got alcohol in your mouth. Um, I can't say I could recommend that. No, sorry. No, I'm not particularly keen on that at all. Um, I would say that is a two for me. I'd go with that. Two out of five burners for me too. I mean, I'll force it down. Let us take our glasses and descend into the bowels of Podcasting House, open up the door of the Black Archive. What are you thinking of into the Black Archive, or from the Black Archive? Well, from the Black Archive, I think it's it would be churlish uh, not to uh, find things that are missing that had Nicholas Parsons in. Now, you're better versed at this than I am, but Just a Minute was a very long-running series on, well, is a very long-running series on BBC Radio 4. It's been going 51 years, I think. And Nicholas Parsons was in virtually every episode from the start to the present day. He missed two and they were only within the past sort of 12, 18 months because he was ill. And at the age of 95, 96, he can probably be excused a day off. For those that don't know it, it's a Radio 4 panel show. You're given a subject to talk about for one minute and you must talk on it without deviation, hesitation or repetition. And it is very, very difficult to do. So basically gerrymandering. 
Yeah. Oh, do, oh, do you mean not gerrymandering? Do you mean filibustering? The political thing where. Yeah, you... filibustering. Um, so it's gerrymandering. That's sort of where you guide things a certain way or interfere to get them to go a certain way. Well, I mean, whatever it is where you stand up and talk non stop so that the time for the reading yeah, is. It's filibustering, that, yeah. It's, yeah, that's. It's a dirty trick, boys and girls. Yes. Uh, a favourite of Mr. Rees Mogg. Um, he's used it to blow some very socially appropriate bills out of the water. There is, while well, we're on that particular subject, there is some tosser, and it was all to do with. I seem to remember it being to do with upskirting or something like that, or. The rules in Parliament are quite. Some of them could do with updating, because if one member stands up and just says object, the entire bill is put on hold and it just stops it there and then it blocks it. <clears throat> they've got to go through this whole tedious process. And there's one guy and he's done it for a couple and they've been really quite important bills recently. I seem to remember discussing it with you at the time. Yeah. I'm silly old fart. I know, I know the bloke you mean. I can I can see him. I can't remember his name. So yeah, ignoring all of that and going back to just a minute, it is, um, I can't say that it's a particular favourite of mine, I do periodically if it's on I will listen to it, because I do listen to quite a bit of Radio 4, but it just seems a shame that there are any, any gaps, what are you going to pick? I'm again going to pick something from his output, I'm going to pick a TV thriller from the early 60s called Night Train to Surbiton, he plays one of the leads in that, he's a passenger on a train who discovers a, a dead body he and his fellow passenger go to um, find the, the guard to report it by the time they get back their dead body has disappeared it had pretty good reviews at, at the time pretty fondly remembered by people who saw it none of it exists and that would be nice to have back so that's Night Train to Surbiton so after that shall we crack on with Curse of Fenric we're going to do episodes 1 and 4 as we normally do um, but we will make special mention of his character's death scene, which happens in episode three. I do like these title sequences. Yeah. I, I know they came in for a bit of stick at the, uh, at the time, and it, it doesn't have the, the whole childhood visceral, mm. this is my Doctor Who of the um, Tom Baker uh, time vortex, but I think they're, they're quite nice. Um, they're not as polished as the current ones, but they're what, 30 years old. Oh, uh, yeah, 30, 33 years. I never liked the wink, though. And I never liked this logo either. I can't put my finger on why. So some nice underwater filming. I remember watching this at the time and absolutely loving it. This final season of Doctor Who, the third one featuring Sylvester McCoy. It, it's where he really found his feet. Yeah. Some of these episodes Actually, are quite dark and you see this manipulator. That's an interesting typeface for uh, the subtitles. Actually, to be fair, his final couple of seasons <coughs> were, were generally very good. That duffel coat's not very doctorish, but apparently he really liked it and he was going to adopt that as the costume if he'd gone to a fourth season. Mm. And Ace was supposed to be written out in the, the following season. In the subsequent season, and uh, Julia Sawala was taken over. Uh, she was going to take over as the companion. She was going to be a thief. Was the plan to call her Emma? I think it was, yes. Yeah, in 1999 there was a, a comic relief skit. 
And it was actually very good. It was written by Stephen yeah. Moffat, and it was uh, they did it in four episodes over the course of the night, and it was pretty bloody good. But the character in that was played by Julia Sawala, and although she's never referred to on screen, the character's name was Emma. He never really managed that effortless authority the same no. way that the others did. Some of Sebastian McCoy's best performances, and the one that I can single out is actually Death Comes to Time. It's all very low, brooding, quietly spoken stuff. And there's far more menace in Sylvester McCoy's performance when he does that. It's Mrs. Ken Barlow. It is. Mrs. Ken Barlow the first. Yes, she was the the hairdryer, wasn't she? Yes. I'm sorry to disturb you, sir, but these two are unauthorised personnel. Unauthorised? We're here by the urgent request of the War Office. I think you'll find this is signed by the Prime Minister of the Head of Secret Service. I must apologise, sir. We weren't informed of your arrival. He's just done that in full view of those two. Yes. And neither of them are saying anything. No. Which kind of goes against her character. It, it doesn't against his at all. Mm. Because... He, he's just done the whole scientific curiosity thing. But she she's a stickler for rules, isn't yes. she? Unless she's thinking, it's not my place to Possibly. to comment because what's-his-face is the boss. Do you know, I haven't seen this for a very long time. This is good. I'm gripped. <laughs> and that whole underwater looking at the um, the masthead for the... Uh, the Viking longboat is fantastic, really atmospheric. Mm. The only shame that the real shame about this final season is that by this point, for a few uh, a few years, uh, in order to save money, all the outdoor scenes were shot on video rather than film, and it's quite low quality video as well. So McCoy's stuff doesn't always look as pristine as stuff that's gone before it. It's a shame because by this point, the BBC were clearly either trying to kill it or just refusing to spend anything on it whatsoever. And that, that's a nice mm. point of view shot. And the soldiers are very young, which is kind of appropriate mm. for, towards the end of the war. Because when was this set? 43, 44? I don't know, actually. But all that, there, that last few scenes, they were genuinely filmed at twilight, which does make a difference. Yeah. Miss Hardacre, of course, who cropped up in Mummy on the Orient Express as the grandmother. Oh, so she did. I, I love Mummy on the Orient Express. Commander Millington. Oh, what else has he been in? Or am I just thinking that he looks like somebody else? He does look very familiar. Um, um, Nicholas Parsons' character breathing a big sigh of relief that they've just rescued him mm. from the, the old baggage. Where's the alphabet? The later Vikings use the 16 character alphabet. Don't tell me. They thought it was a machine convicted of sophisticated Nazi ciphers. Some ninth century shouldn't be much of a problem. His character's great. Mm. So it's scientifically fascinated, but a bit spiky and unpredictable. Alfred Lynch played Commander Millington. Died in 2003, age 72. All right, keep your hair on. You impudent child. Oh, that she's pious, god-bothering attitude that, thankfully, you don't see a lot of nowadays. But 
Oh, it's always rubbed me up the wrong way. All these people that go to church and... No, not all, but, but people who... The type of people that go to church and then bang on and on and on about forgiveness without showing any of themselves. Now, the only thing about this is it looks a bit old and rusty and naked. And it's, it would all be brand new. It's supposed to be brand new. Uh, and this was filmed at a museum, wasn't it? Oh, I don't know, was it? I, th- I think so. I, th- I think this is actual original stuff that he's, he's playing about with. And that's why, if you look, he's not actually pressing any buttons. Mm. I'm afraid I don't understand. I'm afraid yes, but what? You tend to forget that he was an actor because you used to see him uh, as a game show game host. Game show host, yeah. And he, he, oh, he does put in a very good performance. Mm. He's perfectly cast as a vicar, yeah. a priest. Sounds like it. And again, very effectively creepy. Mm. Carrying home the Orient treasures from the silk lands of the East. Now, let's see how Dr. Johnson gets along, shall we? And they've just nicked his book. Oh, that's creepy. Body underwater. Why's that baby got a super Ted in 1944 or whatever? This is a bit odd because Ace was never goo-gooing about kids or babies otherwise, was she? No. And she completely ignores that kid in um, in Dragonfire, mind you. Was a badly behaved little brat, so. Extraordinary. What is this? This is a perfect replica of the German naval cipher room in Berlin. Yeah, this bit just seems a, a little odd. The whole surrounding yourself by with your enemy to think like your enemy. The only problem with this final season was blink and you've missed it. You need to hang on every line. The entire production was shot on location. Yes, it was. That's true. Had that been done any other time apart from Spearhead? Zontaran experiment. Was there any studio stuff in survival? Yes, in, inside the um, youth club. Yeah, but wasn't that actually inside a youth club? Lilsden Manor is apparently where it was filmed. very good I thoroughly enjoyed that um, and as with an awful lot of um, the Doctor Who stuff we watch we were particularly bad in that for not saying anything yeah I think that laid it down to about five minutes or something <laughs> far more enjoyable than I expected I enjoyed Curse of Fenric when it was when it was first put out and 
I've enjoyed it whenever I've rewatched it. it. It's wonderfully creepy. You get a, a real sense of sort of ramping up tension as you go through. Mm. Episodes two and three don't drag like they, they often do in Who stories. No, but again, as I've said about this season 26, um, which has just come out on Blu-ray, I believe it's sat waiting for you at home, isn't it? Yes. Blink and you've missed it. You need to hang on every line for these stories. Yeah, um, and... They really repay rewatching. Well, yes, but in particular, um, this and Ghostlight, which um, I believe the the Blu-ray version of Ghostlight is a a much better because they they've gone back to the source tapes yeah. rather than transmission tapes, which were in terrible condition. But they've also found a lot of other material and spiced together some sort of special edition, I think. Which uh, I read a review the other day that said it doesn't enhance the story, but it does give it room to breathe. Because that's a three-part story that is really tightly packed. Yeah, and you, even and then you don't know what's going on. Yeah, it, it's... I mean, I, I like Ghostlight because it's very Sapphire and Steel. Mm. And, and you know how much I love Sapphire and Steel. But um, Fenric's... It's not quite that bad. It is a four-part story. And there's plenty going on. And this, again, they were setting up the Seventh Doctor as... He already really knows what's going on before they land. Yeah. And... It's one of those almost sort of Lovecraftian evil from beyond time. Mm. And that there's this and there's Greatest Show in the Galaxy and a, a couple of others that have that kind of almost Cthulhu mythos yeah. feel to it. Actually, much more so this than anything else. It, it's, it's later than Lovecraft's writing, but it, it's the same kind of feel to it. Now, I've, I've always loved the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, you've, you've mentioned um, this many times. H.P. Lovecraft himself is a is a problematic author and there are there are writings of his that I just haven't been able to finish because he was right, some of those it, it was Victorian era writing it was quite yeah, he was fairly horrifically racist different times oh boy different times no 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 it's there's a, <coughs> there's a lot of his stuff that is almost unreadable because of it but that's more his essays than, than right his, than his writing his, than his writing fiction. his his short stories I can gloss over his politics for because they're set in stone they're never going to change mm. difference between that and somebody like graham linehan is that his <laughs> politics could possibly change and from what you've said this weekend may have changed i don't I, again i don't think his his uh, politics as you call it have changed i think he's been taken out of context because it's i don't find him or his views. Bear in mind, I've not seen absolutely everything, but it's fairly clear in several articles that I've read of his recently that whatever he's been pegged as isn't strictly true. It's, it's people say, because bear in mind, in 128 characters on Twitter, there's you can't convey everything you want to say. I know you've said that he no, should be better. No, you can't, but you can make sure that what you say is unambiguous. And the stuff that I've read that he, uh, that he has said has been pretty unambiguous. Um, as I say, I, I will withhold judgment until I've, I've read more recent things. And I, I hope that he has changed his attitude, but it will very definitely be a change in attitude rather than a clarification of something that wasn't understood previously. But we'll part, I, yeah, we'll part. But I, I will have a read and, and let you know what I think. The point remains without pointing a specific finger at anybody. Somebody who is alive and producing new work one has the facility to change their mind about things and two are actually adversely affected by footfall so you've got somebody who's got horrifically racist sex homophobic whatever views 
if people stop consuming their product because of those views, then that has a direct effect on them. It may not alter what they think, mm. but it does demonstrate that the consumer has power to to relegate their consumption according to their own moral compass. Um, I suppose the only example of that that I've ever done is actually Gillette. I haven't bought any new Gillette products now for a good 12 months, possibly longer. Because they, I've sworn by the quality of their razors for 20 odd years. Oh, have you tried Harry's? No. Really good. But they produced uh, an advert which had nothing to do with shaving and was basically saying, all you men, and really specifically white men, you really must stop touching up women, you know, and being a little bit more... And it had absolutely nothing to do with razor blades. I don't bandy the word offensive about a lot because I just uh, people have different views no problem but when it's sort of by default targeted at me and it isn't true I do get a little bit put out I don't want to know what Gillette's personal politics are Um, I just want a razor blade that cuts my beard well and doesn't cut my skin to be told after all this time and it was a, a very definite telling advert Basically, we want you to buy our products, but we want you to stop being so horrible to women. That was basically the message, and there was quite a, a, a stink caused about that. What was the other thing? Uh, there was because companies that uh, we are going way off topic here, but yeah. companies that put out adverts that are nothing to do with their products, but are, in, are instead moralising for some bizarre reason. HSBC did it. Nothing at all to do with banking, and it was all moral. Anyway, forget it. So back to Curse of Fenric and the Nazis and uh, the Second World War. It is a lot better than I remember. Because I don't particularly look at that season very fondly. Battlefield is what it is. It's only saved because of the Brigadier. Oh, and Jean Marsh. Um, oh, yeah, and Jean, yes, of course. Yeah, she's entertaining, whatever she's been in. Um, actually, I really like Bambera. Unless that was the Brigadier you meant. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but they have brought back Brigadier Bambera for Big Finish. She was in one of the lost stories. I'm trying to be surprised. Big but Finish, it- mind that. I think Fenric, uh, Fenric has come back in a story. I think it's... Gods and monsters, I think. So Big Finish take the the mythos and the the history of Doctor Who and they mine it and they wring every last scintilla out of it. Sometimes well, sometimes less well, but they do at least try. Yeah, third extra from the left in Space Museum makes a reappearance. <laughs> no, I'm a big supporter of Big Finish. Um, uh, the script, as, as I am. Um, <clears throat> yes, I'm you are. Yeah. I'm just a, a selective. Support it. Now, Big Finish has a lot of a captive market because there are a group of fans who will buy anything that has the name Doctor Who. Mm, That's true, yes. And I've never fit into that category. Mm. I listen to lots and lots of Big Finish. There's an awful lot that I enjoyed. There's actually more that I was bored by or actively disliked. Mm. And after a few years, it got to the point where the signal to noise ratio wasn't worth my time or money to invest in the um, the new Doctor Who ranges. The only thing I will say is the downfall or the, the fault that I've got with them is that they produce far too much stuff. Yes. Uh, it used to be the monthly range when it was just the monthly Doctor Who stories. That was more than enough because every story was an event. Now they're just lost in the mire because there's so many different spin-off ranges. Yeah. And from the perspective of a profitable company, that's exactly what they should be doing um, because they are churning out a uh, a paying resource mm. and there are gr- groups of fans who will pay for everything that big finish puts mm. out that has doctor who on it 
There were a couple of the monthly ones that I absolutely hated, and I can't remember which one came first, but it was the Pirates and it was the Natural History of Fear. Um, and the Natural History of Fear took itself so seriously, and it was just an absolute rip-off and dumbing down of Dark City, which is a, a wonderful, <coughs> wonderful film. And it, give it its due, it doesn't pretend to be anything mm. other than that, if you know Dark City. Which I don't. It's a brilliant, creepy, insightful, well-plotted, well-directed, well-acted. It's a wonderful, wonderful <coughs> film. And it even gets a, a name call in the superlative Outland. Outland, what a fine, fine series. Yes. yes Natural History of Fear. Na- Natural I- History of Fear was so mindless and lauded as this brilliant piece of drama and intelligent and insightful. And the story is intelligent and insightful. It just wasn't written by the person who wrote The Natural History of Fear. So that that was one that I really didn't like. And The Pirates. Yeah, yeah. I, now, The Pirates I is lauded pirates. as this great... Because I don't actually think I've made it all the way through to the end because I hated it that much. Yeah, it's... Oh, horrific death. Let's have a happy sing-song about it. I'd have to, I, I should go back to that and give it another yeah, go. My, my recollection is that the, the cabin boy is killed in a fairly horrific manner and then they just have a sing song. Right. Um, and I appreciate that it was trying to be Gilbert and Sullivan and, mm. and all of this bit. Pirates of Penzance, yada, yada, yada. And I don't know Gilbert and Sullivan terribly well, but I don't know of any instances where there's a, a fairly horrific death scene followed by a song and dance. I seem to remember running through it was... The Doctor and Evelyn were telling a story to a girl in a flat somewhere, talking some young girl out of suicide. I think that was the, the gist of it. But I'd have to go back. Dragging us all the way back to Curse of Fenric, we are up to the end of episode three, and there is a lot has been crammed in. Black fog turned day into night, and the fingers of death reached out from the waters to reclaim the treasures we have stolen. The earth shall fall asunder, and all of heaven too. The waters are most dangerous. The wolves of Fenric shall return for their treasure. Vampires are just superstition. Come and play us. You are touched by the curse of Fenric. You know what's going on, don't you? Only stop asking me these questions. Tell me! The evil evils of the dawn of time. You're too late! In episodes two and three, things do, they move along at a, a quite a lick because that's just what McCoy's later stories do. Yeah, and the episode one is very much setting the scene. There isn't really much of the fantastical in there. There's been, been a couple of people who have been killed with, with weird marks on their, their throats and there's an underwater boat. There's the, uh, the translation and the, the crypt wall. Moving through episodes two and three, then you start uh, meet the the crew of the underwater boat, who are the the Hemovores. They have a a flask which is the treasure from the Orient that the um, translation and the, the Russian orders were were talking about, and that gets plugged into the Ultima computer and starts to glow green and initially looks as though it's taking over taking over Commander Millington. But at the very end of episode four, you find out that it's actually Judson that he's taken over. Episode three. Yeah. Uh, sorry, episode three. Um, it's actually Judson that he's taken over. He stands up. Out of his wheelchair. Uh, looks at the Doctor and says, we play the game again, Time Lord. Mm-hmm. So obviously there is history with the Doctor. 
many of the incidental characters along the way have either been killed or turned into hemovores. The um, the two girls that Ace befriended in episode one. Because Ace, they do peel away the layers as time wears on. By the end of season 26, she's basically a gibbering wreck about anything to do with her past. Yeah, and and there are three stories that very strongly, um, or to different degrees of strength, focus on Ace's past. There's this, there's Ghostlight, and there's Survival. Mm. And it was... Um, when Andrew Cartmel came on board, it's banded about, which he, he himself actually sort of denies or says that it wasn't... It's called the Cartmel Master Plan. Yeah. And it was basically to, to re-mystify the character of the Doctor, which they did... Over this, it was just buried away on Monday nights and nobody saw it. In fairness, some of these stories are bloody complicated and they're not the Doctor Who of old. Um, it's not really Saturday night stuff anymore for families because they would just be baffled and probably bored by And this. it was recognising that there is a, a growing video market and that people will watch all four episodes back to back. So when you've got something like the, the War Games, where, yeah, it's ten episodes, that's a mammoth chunk of stuff to watch, and repetitive uh, scenes in episodes sort of replaying what's gone on before. If you're watching it week by week, you wouldn't notice that so much. We, it's just we have the mm. facility to watch all of them at once. But when we did the War Games, we watched it a couple of episodes at a time. My ten episodes of anything I don't think I could watch. Yeah. So we're now segueing again. So shall we crack on with episode four? We oh, shall. we need to mention Nicholas Parsons' final scene. Coming up towards the end of episode three, his character tries to face down the the Hemovores using the power of faith. Now, we've already seen that Sorin has been able to do this using his belief in the Russian Revolution. Yes. And is able to pass because he's focusing on his regimental badge and his belief in his homeland. Wainwright tries to do that, focusing on his belief as a Christian, and isn't able to do that because he has become disillusioned as a result of the war. He tries to... Convince say, himself. To, yeah, to say that I have no control over what the, the Germans do. Uh, and they just say, well, that's not what's disillusioned you. It's the British bombs killing German children that's disillusioned you. And he breaks down and is killed. Mm. And that's towards the end of episode three. And, and it was very well played. Mm. He did a very nice, understated performance. And with this, we're used to some very over-the-top performances from Millington, from Judson old baggage in the cottage at the beginning whose name I can't remember they're they're very in your face Mm. performances and Nicholas Parsons is quiet and measured and not backgrounding but subtle I'm here you don't believe we'll see There's also a lovely bit which actually the sound for was they never used it. It was uh, the Doctor. He uses his uh, faith by reciting the names of former companions. He starts with Susan, Ian, and Barbara yeah. and Vicky, and it's you. You can see him mouthing the words, but the sound was trimmed off. That that's a shame. But anyway, uh, that's enough eulogising about episodes one to three. Let's see how it Welcome all ends. Episode four.
City and Briggs done anything else? I don't know. He does not half remind me of someone else as well. I just can't. And there, there was quite a lot of old mythology tied into the stories at this time. So that particularly Norse mythology, because you've got gods of Ragnarok. There's a lot of Norse things tied into this. And they do look very good and creepy. They yeah, they are. The cons, yes. And the firing squad bit is... Oh, and they, they let her bring a backpack with her. Do you know, I always forget about this battle sequence. Yeah. Because it, it seems very much at odds with the rest of the story. Because you've got all this evil from the dawn of time stuff going on. And a, a gun battle doesn't really seem to, to fit in with that. What a pity that the one time they need it to be an overcast, crappy day, they've clearly had to bring in a rain machine because it's brilliant sunshine. It's a pity that the Hemovores just looked a little bit disappointing. I mean, I get that it's supposed to be they've been under the sea for ages and they've had mildew, or, or they've had Barnacles, stuff yeah. grow on them. And we've all seen Pirates of the Caribbean since, which does that particular thing much better. Yeah. And I, I quite like the way that they work in the Doctor's past in this. I think it works a lot better than Battlefield. Oh, yes, yeah. I actually think the Hemovore costume, well, certainly for the Great One, is actually pretty bloody good. The Great One, yes. I mean, the... The other ones look a yeah. bit... But you see what I mean about the um, Pirates of the Caribbean bit? Things like Barnacle Bill. Yeah. Kind of look like that. The whole bit with Ace's Gran, um, and you can understand why they're doing it, but it kind of doesn't really make sense. Because she's supposed to not know who she is. Mm. That says that Ace doesn't know what her grandmother's name is. Yeah, that... And I know we haven't got to the bit where she's... Um... Now, how come that that green misty thing has just killed them stone dead, but the Ace and the Doctor are able to stand in it? And, and those piled-up torpedoes are obviously a, a, a mould. Um, oh, yeah, they, yes, they yeah. are. Yeah. The ones where you see them side on, mm. not too bad. Let's join forces. Fight the real enemy. This is nice. They, whoever's playing that English soldier is a dreadful actor. Um and Ace and Sorin is, is quite sweet. And again, this is quite creepy. I feel this is what Dr. Judson... Oh, no! Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. And she's one of the few that's been in Old Who and New Who. Yes, she is. Because she was Smith and Jones. Yes, that's right. Right, so why is he shot him in the leg? Why is he just lying there when he's got a gun and blokey who shot him is in front of him? I hate chess. Oh, I don't mind chess. I'm quite quite fond. My grandfather was a a very, very good, as a national level chess player. And back in the 50s, the only reason he didn't play for England was because he couldn't afford to and Mm. there weren't sponsorships or anything at the time. But he he was very, very good. And so one of the things when we were being looked after was learning to play chess. And his way of teaching was for me to make one move and for him to spend about 20 minutes explaining why it's the wrong move and 15 moves ahead, why that would mean that I would lose the game. And it just bored me senseless. So a bit like Shakespeare, it was overanalyzed to bits to the point where it knocked all the fun out of it. You see, I can understand what they're 
trying to do with it, with that and her bonding with her grandmother and um, connecting with the, um, the mother that she didn't like. But the only way that that works is if she didn't know what her grandmother or her mother's name was. I, I never really understood why they had why they had to be killed, to be honest. No. I appreciate that dramatically it clears the base so that Ace and Soren and the Doctor and people who need to move around can move around. Thousands of years in the future. The Earth lays dying, the surface just a chemical slime. Half a million years of industrial progress. So does that mean that the Hemovores are <coughs> proto-drakes? Hmm. So they're sort of halfway to what will be in Orphan 55. It carries you back in a time storm to destroy the Earth's water with chemicals, to destroy your future. Think on it. Your Earth, your world, dying of a chemical slime. This act will be the beginning of your end. I do like that about McCoy's Doctor. He talks people to bits. Yeah. Oh dear. Thank you. Why has he got green eyes and uh, and Dr. Judson had red eyes? Maybe for the same reason some people have blue eyes and some people have brown eyes. Dr. Judson. That chess piece was taped down. <laughs> Oh, she's putting a cracking performance mm. here, isn't she? In 30 years, the baby will be grown. She will have a daughter. That daughter will be you. You've just created your own future. As I say, that bit really doesn't make sense. The baby is your mother. The mother you hate. I believe in you, Professor. Neil, if you want the girl to live. I've never really got the whole having to break down her faith in him bit. Um, I mean, it, it's very dramatic, but it doesn't make an awful lot of sense. No, it doesn't. Before Cybernet, ever since Iceworld, where you first met the girl. I knew. I knew she kind of evil inside her. I think I'd have chosen a social misfit if I hadn't known. She couldn't even pass her chemistry exams at school. And if she manages to create a time storm in her bedroom, I saw your hand in it from the very beginning. Oh. With an emotional cripple. I wouldn't waste my time on her unless I had to use it somehow. No! <laughs> Kill them. And that's kind of a foreshadowing how well they work together in the audience. Yes. That was why it, she needed to lose her faith so that the hemophore could get past. Why can't we stop hating her? You love the baby. I didn't know she was my mum! Why not? Well, all this underwater stuff is quite nice. Mm. It, it hasn't added an awful lot to it, but it looked great. And I suppose there's the whole sort of washing clean symbolism. Hmm. 
She must have been freezing. Yes. I don't care when that was filmed. The water anywhere on English beaches is never warm. Well, that's that, that was filmed Purbeck, I think, and was it Lulworth Cove, somewhere like that. I've not looked it up. There is a book somewhere called Travels Without the Tardis, and it's horrifically inaccurate. I, I'm sure that I mean it, it, it's somewhere on the um, on the Fossil Coast because I, I used to live not massively far from there when I was a kid and I don't think it's massively far from where uh, Andy and Lisa are um, but we, we used to go to the beaches uh, as kids and even height of summer the sea wasn't warm Do you know I've just noticed that Kef McCulloch did this arrangement of the theme tune he isn't credited. Ron Grain is credited. And it's not bad. I mean, he, his incidental stuff tends to be a bit electronic. Yes. So I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot more than I've given it credit for in my mind. It, it's one I haven't seen in quite a while. Which, so that there were things like not really remembering why Ace's faith had to be broken mm. down. And the, the whole bit about this is your grandmother doesn't make sense because she she was kind of raised by her grandmother, so she would have known the woman's name. Yeah. She'll have driven away from there, gone all the way all the way to London, turn up at some random address and say, oh, Ace sent me. And I think, who the hell's Ace? And for some reason, then lives there for the rest of her life. Again, as we just... Tonight we have watched Praxius. That's been transmitted tonight. And we went on about... The story being crammed into an episode, and Curse of Fenric is certainly crammed in the story yeah. over four parts, but also not to scratch the surface too hard with Doctor Who sometimes. And uh, it is a bit clumsy, actually, for for who? Yeah. They'd have thought about it a bit more carefully nowadays, because audiences generally are more savvy about time and paradoxes now. And at the time that this was coming out, there wasn't the online forums. Okay, there were... There were fanzines and there was discussion of each episode, but it, not into the the depth that goes into now where every word is analysed. Yes, yeah. And the other thing is it was a much smaller production and writing team. Mm. Look at the, the number of producers and script editors that there are now. Back in, the, back in the day then, there would have been one of each. Yes. It's a shame that it ended when it did. I'm sort of on the fence with it, really. The rest certainly did it at the power of good. I think if it had just carried on and on and on, it wouldn't have got this big, wonderful reboot in 2005. Yeah. Or in 2005, it wouldn't be this big event. It would have been nice to have the final season that was planned. Yeah, that was planned which did sound with very the, good. The end of Ace's story, a proper mm. leaving, leaving for her. If we could have got that one extra year. Uh, but it sounds like we have just got, is it? Today or yesterday, we have actually final, finally got Ace's End, a book by Sophie Aldred. Yes, I've seen a couple of things on Twitter that people are reading it and loving it. But you stick Doctor Who on the um, the cover of anything, somebody will read it, read it and love it, and put it all over Twitter. So I've got it on pre-order. I'll let you know what I think once I've read it. I used to, I wouldn't actually mind reading that one. I might get that one. Mm. I'll put it on my colossal stack of books to read. And apparently there is a. A trailer for it 
it's not actually a trailer, but it, it's a newly filmed sequence with Ace as she is now that ties in with the book. And oh, I thought that was a trailer for season 26. Apparently it's on the season 26 box set. Because I have seen it. No, it's Ace now as the head of a charity. charity. I haven't seen it, so I'll I'll let you know what I think when I do see it, and I'll let you know what I think of the book when I read it. But certainly the McCoy and Ace combination was one of the more interesting Doctor Companion mixes that we had. Right, so with that, shall we wrap up? Sort of. We have someone to hear from first. I am Persian. Name your price. Now, I can't imagine this is terrifically high on your scale. No, not really. I mean, there there is some good resting bitch face. Sophie Aldred actually does quite a good one. Uh, Nurse Crane does. Hemovores do. That's quite good. Their costumes, no, they're, they're functional and military. And even the, the non-military female characters have fairly uninteresting 1940s get-up. Mm. I think it merits a two. Two? Okay. For the resting bitch face. And... One is what we've generally been given to things where there isn't really any... So we gave Time Meddler one. Mm. And the costumes are a little bit more glam than um, the rags that they wore in the Time Meddler. So, yes, so I, I think it has to to count higher than that. And that would be a two. And on that, um, analysis of drag queens and the curse of Fenric, which is a sentence I never expected to utter... Uh, we shall wrap up. We shall be back in a week with the next episode. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. And raising a glass to Nicholas Parsons. Cheers. Goodbye. Bye now. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.